Welcome to the Ad Nauseam Podcast, where classical gourmands everywhere can finally get their fill. Join us for a delectable discussion of Greco-Roman civilization stretching from the Minoans and Mycenaeans through the Renaissance and right down to the present. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here are your hosts, Dr. David Noe and Dr. Jeff Winkle. Welcome, Ad Nauseam listeners, to episode 93 of the podcast. It's a sunny, balmy summer morning in mid-August here in West Michigan. Yeah. And I am... Go ahead. No, I'm just agreeing with you. With the yeah? <laughs> and I am in Vomitorium South here deep in the bunker with my good friend and fabulous co-host, Dr. Jeffrey T. Winkle. How are you, Jeff? I'm doing great. I'm uh, recently back from a, a kind of a week away up in the beautiful north country of uh, our home state of Michigan. Mm-hmm. And so I'm feeling relaxed and Wonderful. ready. Although as I was just telling you before we hit the record button is I'm I'm definitely ready for my boys to get back to school. Okay. And I'm ready for the kind of the regular rhythms of a semester. Yeah. And, and a little bit more um, contemplative time. Oh. Yeah. A little more time to kind of work on projects and, and kind of do my own thing and Mm-hmm. Um, and, but that's just around the corner, and, and I'm looking forward to it immensely. All right. Yeah. And are we going to return to um, the once-per-week release of uh, podcast episodes? That's our ambition, that's, right? That, that's my hope. It really depends on you, Dave. What? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I find that you're kind of the one that's kind of harder to pin down. Really? Yeah, you're, I mean, you're, you're, you mean you got your hands and, and, and feet in so many different things. You're running around and... And you know you're you're making that scratch, right? And you're, you're I, th- I thought you were going to say I got my hands in so many pies, but then when you added feet, that conjured up the well. Part of the part of the problem is that you have the, your feet in the pies as well. Okay, it just complicates things. So um, I'm ready. I'm ready for a once a week. So it's my fault, is what you're saying? Basically, I'm saying that. Okay, so, but I'm hoping that we can nail down something. Maybe even after we're done today, yeah, and we can give the audience a more regular output. Mm-hmm. Right? Summer's been a little bit lax, hasn't it? It has been tough. Yep. to produce the same amount of content because there's so many changes going on in our lives mm-hmm. you know um seems like there's some pop song i could introduce here are you oh, I'm changes yeah david bowie that's david bowie yeah 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 Good i song. thought that was a uh, iggy stardust ziggy stardust ziggy stardust is a um is an alter ego of of the uh, late david bowie the late david bowie yes, right? they are one in the same oh same person same person yes right, right so I believe it was in his, that the uh, persona hmm. of Ziggy Stardust that he he wrote and recorded that song. I could be wrong, but I think okay. that's right. So we're both we're both right. When it comes to pop culture, you're you're always right. There's no doubt. So let's move on to the the episode today. Yeah, let's do it. Are you going to ask how I'm doing? I am. I was just about to, but you jumped ahead. So Dave, okay. how are you doing? Fine. So <laughs> uh, we'd like to talk today more about. Virgil's Aeneid. Yes, we're going to get to, or hopefully, going to close out book four. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so um, in in many cases, I think a lot of people would say this is in some ways a dramatic high point Absolutely. of the entire epic. So we're going through that. Maybe get a little bit into into book five. Um, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I've really been enjoying kind of rereading the Aeneid. It's incredible. It's it's been it's been a few years since I've okay. I've been in it, um, but I'm seeing so much more in this. And so when you we think about it from the point of view of, I'm not really teaching a class. I gotta mm. I gotta um, kind of. You know, find some insights and look, find new ways to look at this for our audience. It just makes it for a much more interesting read. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you. It's the Fastigium Operus. Fastigium Opera. What, yeah, what, what, Operus. It's the high point of the work. Oh, okay. So Fastigium. far. Fastigium. I'm not, I don't know that one. Yeah, that Fastigium, Apex. These are uh, okay. Summa. These are synonyms. Gotcha. 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 Speaking of shout outs. Yeah. Uh, we have one and uh, this is a nice one. This is really nice. And uh, I think we should read the majority of it. because I this, agree. This gentleman put a lot of work into it. So this shout out goes to Father David Pelican and uh, Father Pelican says, I am a Catholic priest serving at Divine Child, a parish and K-12 school in Dearborn, Michigan, fellow Michigander. All right. He says, I am also an avid lover of the Latin language and recently spent a week at a canoculum where we spoke Latin exclusively. Mm. We have a robust Latin program in our high school, which I support in any way I can. I am able to periodically celebrate mass in Latin for interested students as well. For any Latin right Catholic, the language is integral. Is that, did I pronounce that right? I think so. Yeah. It's not integral? Integral. Integral that's to that's our ecclesiastical tradition. But it is also important to me because I have a deep appreciation for the classics. Your podcast has been a helpful way for me to pursue my love of the classics in the midst of ministry. That's really interesting. I mean, mm-hmm. this, one, this, this sounds like your kind of guy. He's just, he spent a, a Latin a, speaker. A Latin speaker. Absolutely. That's great. But it made me kind of, as you were reading this, it made me wonder of if there's often that kind of that disconnect that a place might have kind of a robust uh, Latin program, 
but that doesn't necessarily come with kind of a deep appreciation for the classics. Well, it, that's true. It can, and be, it can be more narrow. You're right. And yeah. in fact, just before uh, coming here, I was doing some research, some study uh, for a future episode, uh, Carl Richard's book on the golden era of classics in the United States. Yeah. So yeah, here's a spoiler alert, I guess. Um, we're going to be covering that book. Uh, we covered... Uh, the Founders and the Classics, about a year ago for our July 4 episode. That's right. And then we're going to have Carl Richard on the show as a guest. Fantastic, yeah. And uh, he was talking about this very thing, that in 19th century pedagogy, not to give away too much, but in 19th century pedagogy, there were some people who said, the only point in reading Latin is mastering grammar. Hmm. And then there was a reaction to that, led by Basil Gildersleeve and others, who said, no, you got to appreciate the people and the culture and... Uh, it was like listening to to Winkle, actually, because hmm. <laughs> it's you know it's right up your alley. Yeah, that sounds. You, you got to really yeah. learn to uh, appreciate them as a people with real interests and desires and failings, and the language is um, subservient to that or supportive of that. Right, it's, it's not an end in itself. Right, right, right. So yeah, I'm I'm here. I think that's uh, in some ways you're kind of almost translating what uh, Father Pelican is saying. Here. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You want to continue with that second paragraph? Yeah. So he goes on. He says, "I first discovered ad nauseum when it was." Just just beginning. I believe it was advertised in emails from Latin per diem, uh, the best free resource I know of to keep one's Latin skills fresh. So a nice little plug for yeah, you, Yeah, I sir. didn't pay him to say that. <laughs> Ad nauseum is the only podcast I have listened to every episode of. Man, this guy's a, that's that's really a super nice. fan. That's, that's, that's really awesome. nice. Yep. He says, your blend of humor and insight and ability to deliver exceptional content in a laid back manner keep me eagerly waiting for the next episode to drop. I have especially appreciated the more in-depth series on the classical works. The Aeneid episodes, which are right in the middle of right now, have been great thus far. And when the Odyssey series came out, I reread the book as I listened to those episodes. That's exactly what we hope our audience that is, will do. That is incredibly yeah. gratifying. To yeah. think that we have, I know this is going to sound like self-praise, but um, to think that we have encouraged people to read the classics, that's, that's very gratifying. Yeah. He goes on to say that he got the Lombardo translation of the Odyssey uh, from Hackett. And he used our generous coupon code. And mm. You'll hear more about that soon. Right. Um, and he thanks us for our dedication to making the classics classics accessible to all. And he's continually recommending our podcast to people he knows. Yeah. Thank you, David. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being an avid listener and a supporter. And uh, he adds here at the end um, a nice suggestion for a future topic for an episode. And we're going to take that very seriously. So thanks for t keeping the torch lit out there with the teaching of Latin. Yeah. Fantastic. We got our opening quote here. Yes. Um, can I do this one? Yeah, I think you ought to. Yep. This I, is I, the, um, I hunted this down. I mean, this wasn't, I don't want to give the, the audience the impression this is, oh, something I was casually reading. Right. But when I was reading, um, rereading the section for today uh, from book four, uh, Dido's Suicide, one of the things that jumped out to me was the manner in which she kills herself. Right. She you know, builds this funeral pyre, climbs on top and, and, and uh, stabs herself to death, right? And it struck me as kind of odd and I was thinking along the lines of, you know, how does this compare to, you know, other, you know, particularly feminine deaths mm -hmm. in in the, the classical canon? And I wondered, you know, why did Virgil have her die this way? So I actually went back. I kind of used that as kind of a search term mm. in JSTOR, looking for an right. article. And this article popped up, and I found this guy, R.T. Um, Edgeworth, right? Who basically asked the same question. That's a great name, by the way. Edgeworth. Edgeworth. It's, it doesn't even sound real. Wouldn't you like to have that name? Edgeworth. It sounds like... Jeffrey T. Edgeworth. It sounds like like a supervillain, maybe? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, something... something what coming. would be the opposite of Edgeworth? Um, stuck. Stuck. <laughs> Are you stuck? I'm <laughs> stuck, stuck, too. Yeah. Opposite of Edgeworth. The opposite of edge is like center. Yes. Center. And the opposite of worth is... is... I don't know. Cut. Cut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, continue on. So this is the this is the the, uh, the quote. This comes from an article, um, "The Death of Dido" mm -hmm. uh, from Classical Journal, way back in the mid 1970s. He writes, mm. "Why does Dido meet death atop a funeral pyre?" Critics of the Aeneid, for the most part, have failed to notice the apparent incongruity of this important detail of Dido's death scene, and accordingly have not sought an explanation for the incongruity. Death on a pyre, um, death on a pyre, sounds like a like a uh, Agatha Christie title, right? Yes, it death does. On a pyre. Right. Doesn't but, It doesn't sound like the Hardy Boys. No, it doesn't, it doesn't, no. Death and Empire is certainly not what one would have expected for Virgil's Dido. The canonical mode of suicide for heroines in classical literature, particularly for tragic queens, is death by hanging. You have Antigone, Jocasta, Phaedra, um, Cleate in Apollonius uh, Rhodes, uh, of Rhodes, Argonautica, Amata in the Aeneid coming up. Book 12, right? Book 12, yep. Yeah. Death by poison would have been an unmistakable reference to Cleopatra, 
but Cleopatra is not in the forefront of the poet's consciousness during the death scene. And the element of suicide is entirely absent from the figures of Ariadne and Medea, two of the principal models for Dido. Hmm. So I laid the question out there. Now, I'll give you, when we get to the scene, um, I'll give you Edgeworth's answer to this, which I think was really interesting and something I'd never thought of before. Hmm. And I'm hoping that, you know, you and I can kind of add our own thoughts as to kind of why this is the, the manner and location of Dido's death. Right. Yeah. Right. I do have a question here about... Um Cleopatra, quote, Cleopatra is not in the forefront of the poet's consciousness during the death scene. Mm. So my previous reading and, and research on this book, book four, has been that Cleopatra is the model generally for Dido, specifically with interaction as Aeneas as Antony. So, uh. so is he suggesting that Dido is a model? I'm sorry, Cleopatra is a model for Dido for most of the book, but in the death scene... Virgil adopts a different approach. I, and my, this is the very beginning of the article. Mm. So my sense is that he's he's arguing that Cleopatra is not a model at all. Mm. I thought kind of just this this next thing with that last sentence there that just saying that Ariadne is a model for Dido as if that's just kind of that's known, that's factual. That kind of also struck me as kind of odd. Medea? Yeah. Oh, I totally get the Medea, mm -hmm. the connection. But Ariadne is? Except in, in terms of the character of Medea, Dido is so sympathetic Right. Honestly, you can't imagine Dido murdering um, Ascanius. No, no, no. But I think in the last episode we were talking, you know, uh, Aeneas's kind of cold farewell speech to Dido, uh, to Dido is very much Jason speaking to Medea. Yes. So I think that aspect of it. Um, but right, in terms of temperament, in terms of... Um, what they're capable you know, of. Yeah, Medea doesn't kill herself. No, right? no. No, Medea kills her own children. Right. Whereas, whereas Dido has, doesn't seem to have any desire to harm anyone but herself. I mean, she has an initial desire to harm... Um, Aeneas, but that's a kind of passing rage. Right. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, bear fruit. Right, right. And then Ariadne is, is simply the abandoned woman, right? Yeah, right. Uh, abandoned by Theseus on the island. But she's then she's picked up by Dionysus, and right. she's not really a, a figure that's kind of fleshed out in terms of, you know, you know fluctuating from revenge thoughts to um, no. sympathy to suicide. She's right. just an object of pity, nothing else. Right. There's really no heroism, I would say, in, in her actions and behavior, except maybe the curse Right, she does throw a curse on Theseus's ship. Oh, that's true. That's true. As Theseus is sailing back to Athens, right? And Which Dido does. She we'll does yeah. in a very similar way. The other figure that occurred to me was um, Arachne. So Arachne has a suicide by hanging, but yeah, I don't know if she is really generally considered a tragic heroine. Right. It seems like it's almost another type of story. Right. That's almost yeah, kind of. Uh, she's a she's an archetype. You know, someone's good at something brags that she's better that she or she is better at the god or goddess of that something right tragedy ensues simple hubris not right. not any family conflict right so i think i guess the squishy answer would be that dido is a broad composite of many uh you know pick your favorite tragic heroine and, and you, you you can find her in dido right um but what you know what virgil intended uh perhaps of course we'll we'll never know but i thought i thought too as i read edward quote is that cleopatra especially given how much of kind of contemporary Roman history is layered into the Aeneid, uh, it would be shocking that Cleopatra would not be a model for Dido, at least somewhere in this right. epic, right? Mm -hmm. So, hmm. but, but uh, we'll, see, we'll see, we'll get to Edgeworth's, Edgeworth's answer to this um, later on, and I think it's a really interesting one, yep. intriguing, if not fully persuasive. Not fully persuaded. Uh, we'll okay, see. We'll, we'll have see. to see. Yep. So where should we begin, Dave? Uh, well, I think we need a quick recap. Yeah, of, we do. Um, yeah. <clears throat> not a nightcap, not at this time of day, but... A quick recap of where we are in the story, in case listeners are just coming in at this point. Yeah, well, I was I was gone for a week, and the um, the bright uh, uh, Michigan sun was kind of frying my brain on the beach. So right. um, I'm having a little trouble kind of remember where do we le we leave off? We were it okay. Was, it was Aeneas had just left. Is that where we left it? Yes. Okay. The second appearance of uh, Mercury. That's right. The second appearance of Mercury to Aeneas, saying, well, "You know, why are you you dawdling? She's about to burn things down. Get out." Mm -hmm. And uh, Dido is deceiving her sister Anna, and the funeral pyre is constructed on the very top, on the arcs, the citadel of the city of Carthage. Mm -hmm. And um, Aeneas and his men are down in the harbor. We've had the, the terrible speeches between the two, uh, the two protagonists, in which Dido says, you know, no goddess birthed you. Everyone throughout this epic, Dido says, is calling you goddess born, right? Uh, not uh, Dea, O born of the goddess. But really, you were sired by some Hyrcanian tigress or some yeah. Caucasus mountain. You know, you're born out of a cliff. Right. Suckled, Made of flint. Yeah, suckled by a tigress. So you have that kind of 
tiger's blood in your veins. You're a monster to treat me this way. Do you think that in, in some ways there's a, um, a, a slight reference to Romulus and Remus? You know, Ro- Romans is raised by wild animals. Is, could I, be. I, I, I mean, it's just completely just coming off the top of my head. Right. Except that's, it could be, except that's um, generally considered a very good thing, you know? Right. And um, so I, I'm not sure. Okay. Okay. Um, it would be interesting for Dido to express it that way. It would be interesting for Virgil to put those words in her mouth mm-hmm. because it is 400 years before Romulus and Remus. Right. So then it would be odd. It would be almost too convenient for her to say, it's like you were sired by a wolf. Right. Right. Because he's the great ancestor of Romulus and Remus. Exactly. And yeah, 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 yeah. So that has some plausibility. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then they part ways with Aeneas basically in his extreme passivity uh, according to Brooks Otis, uh, giving almost no kind of answer whatsoever, nothing satisfying. Right. Completely having receded into the background. Right. And so then the, the uh, um, I think, yeah, that's kind of where we, I think we pick it up here. And from here to the end of the book, uh, the camera, so to speak, is almost exclusively on Dido. That's right. We get a little bit of Aeneas, which is interesting where we find him and what he's doing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's maddening. Right. Um, but it's almost wholly given over to Dido's... Um, um, fury. That's right. Yep. She tells Anna to gather up all the stuff that Aeneas left behind and uh, to burn it in a kind of fiery purging exercise. Right. She lies to her sister saying, listen, I, I, I know this sorceress mm-hmm. who can, um, you know, uh, cast a love spell or a hate spell. Mm-hmm. And um, this is part of the this is part of what we need to do. And so she convinces Anna. She even says something like, you know, I, I, I'd be the last one to resort to black magic. But what choice do I have? And Anna is the willing... Um, uh, kind of stooge in this. Mm-hmm. And so, she, yeah, so she builds the pyre. And um, are, you, are you a fan of the, the show Friends? I think I have seen perhaps two and a half or three complete okay. episodes. Okay, so that's a no. Well, yeah. I'm definitely not a fan. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have any aversion to it. Right, right. It's just not something I ever watched. Right, right. I was never a huge fan too. I always kind of found it mildly funny. But what this this reminded me of, there's an episode where one of the women mm-hmm. of, of the, the, the trio is going through a bad breakup and is, isn't able to move on. And so uh, the other two recommend to her, what you need to do is gather up everything, all the letters, all the, the if you have flowers, you have gifts, you need, we'll put them in a big um, um, you know, uh, charcoal bin and we'll, right. we'll burn them up. And so kind of the, you purge it. Right. And so it struck me that this, this kind of that, that notion is not a, is not, I don't think it's an uncommon one. No, I think you're right. Right. You were just saying, Jeff, that you're ready for the semester to resume, to I start am. again. Yes. Uh, are you one of those individuals that either as a student or now as a teacher encourages uh, students to purge their scholastic remnants, pile all of their notes and books and papers in a pile and torch them? I am, I am not. You've never done that? Well, no, I, I think it just comes from I'm kind of a, kind of a bit of a pack rat by nature. You are. I, it's difficult for me to throw things away. So I still have, I still have notebooks from... Under my undergrad, days. really, and I, I keep them more for kind of the doodles I made in the margins than uh, the actual yeah, notes. than the content. So, so but I, I recognize the value in a, in yeah. a purge. My yeah. wife is a purger. I'm a purger. What's the opposite of a pack rat? I guess it'd be an Edgeworth. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I'm always doing. Yeah, I'd love to throw things away because do I do not like the mental attachment, you know, to things that might be um, unpleasant in some way. I'd rather only retain it in the pure distilled form in you know the hallways of my mind. I see. So you're not you're not a very sentimental guy. I'm very sentimental. What, what, how does the, how do those things work together? I don't know. This okay. is why I can't make sense of life. You are you are Edgeworth. <laughs> <laughs> I do save things for a long time, but mm-hmm. but then I take satisfaction in jettisoning them. Yeah, or flotsaming them, one or the other. Yeah, and uh, so students do this routinely. At the institution where we used to teach, yes, uh, there was a course that you probably taught. I taught it many times. It had a number of different names. I think it was called um, Prelude at one point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It may have been called... Seapole. Um, yeah, Topaz. Uh, <laughs> it's just basically your first year seminar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The students would, in a kind of ritual, um, because apparently they didn't like this course, some of them, uh, they would, that's an understatement, they would have a kind of bonfire of the vanities. Oh. And they'd pile these all into it. I had no idea. Yes, that a huge that mound on. and torch it. Really? And I guess it's part of this theme. I don't think that getting rid of the material actually effaces the memory. Um, I, it's not possible, right? Right. You you can't burn it and therefore forget what's in your mind. Right. But maybe the satisfaction is, I've done something now 
that I'd like to do mentally, but I can't. Yes. So I do it physically. Yes. And that's a substitute. Yes. It's vicarious. I, I guess so. Right. It's a, it's a it's a way of kind of um kind of returning to zero in mm. some sense. Like if I if I can't go back to square one in my mind, at least I can do it visually and, and right. physically with the things around me that that I see. Right. I think that was in some ways that was you know you talk about the bonfire of van, the, the vanities you know the what that refers to, of course, is Savonarola. That's in, correct. In Florence, right? Uh, urging people to bring That's their right. bring their luxuries into the into the piazza. To which Botticelli, yes, oh. contributed a couple of paintings. It, it, I wake up in the middle of the night, still kind of in cold tossing, sweat, thinking about exactly, that, right? tossing and turning. <laughs> now, I admire Botticelli's commitment to his convictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, he was not compelled to do that. He did it out of a genuine sense of moral yeah. rectitude. That's my understanding too. But why did he have to ruin those things? Exactly. How about a pair of socks? <laughs> Exactly They're right. Offensive in some way. <laughs> right. Exactly. That that cloak that nobody else really liked anyway. Correct. Right. Right. Toss that Botticelli. <laughs> so yeah. So I think there are lots of uh, manifestations of this kind of thing here. Mm. But um, I think uh, someone burning something um, because of a relationship gone bad. I think mm-hmm. that's. I, I read that. Common. I said, that's that. I think that rings true. Very much rings true. Yep. You. you have you ever done that? I have not. Hmm. I, I, I've been not done because I hang on to things. Right. right? You're the so, back rat. Right. So I don't, I mean, I don't have like this box full of old, you know, mm-hmm. letters and, and such from, from, the, from, um, postcards, postcards and, and such like that. But, um, it's probably, I didn't deliberately throw them away. They just kind of disappeared from one move to the next. That right? happens. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 That right. happens. Yeah. Hey, you want to read some Latin here? I shall. I would really enjoy that. So this is line 509, 509, book four. Stant ardrai circet crinis e fusa sacerdos, ter cantum tonat ordre deos erabum quaqueosque, ter geminam quaquetentri a virginis oradianae, sparseret et latice simulatos, fantis awerni, falcibus et me sad lunam quaeruntur aenis, pubentes herbae negri cum lacta veneni. Very nice. I like that, that uh, lacta veneni. With yeah. the milk of black poison yes my goodness uh he's i think uh i want to talk more about this but um it also struck me reading this is that you know virgil if he were born today he would be a filmmaker you think so yes oh don't don't give in to the notion of the what uh superiority of that genre i'm I'm not saying that sounds like it well i'm saying that those are your exact words right i mean i would put a okay well let's 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 go there for a second i would put a um I would rank a Hitchcock and a Coppola. Sc- a Coppola and a Scorsese up with, right? No? no You're just shaking a, your head over there? It's a different genre. Right. Well, I'm just saying... This is poetry. Okay, I'm saying that if he had the choice, he would have been very good at that. Uh, agreed completely. The way that he... The, the language that he uses, the way he frames a scene, and as we'll see here, the way he balances his scenes strikes me as so cinematic. Yes. In, in the, in the best, I knew you were going to use that word. The best possible use of that word. Right, but think about this for a second. Yep. Why is it that the best poets are described as cinematic, whereas good movie makers are not described as poetic? I think they sometimes are. Really? I think they sometimes are. I think it means that we have subtly accepted the notion that visual imagery is superior to the spoken word. I think that's culturally where we are right now, without a doubt. I think that's kind of a a basic assumption. I think that um, people, as our culture goes forward, as, as... as things become more and more digitized, right? Um, people learn, experience, uh, consume more visually than they do with a printed word. If that's true, we're, we're in trouble because this podcast, you know, doesn't have a strong visual element. No, <laughs> we gave it a go, and we'll probably give it a go again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. But right now, it's it's all the spoken word, right? And that is supposed to be more evocative and descriptive because it. Uh, interfaces with a person's imagination yeah. in a way that having the scenes and images created for you mm-hmm. is arguably inferior. But we're probably off the right. topic a little bit. I, I know we are, but can I say a, a couple more things? Yes. So I, I, an example that jumps into my mind is something like The Godfather, mm-hmm. right? So which was a novel. Mario Puzo wrote The Godfather. Mm. And the film, um, which I think is inarguably one of the best you know, top 10 films made of all time, is a vastly superior product to the novel. Hmm. I, you know, having read it and and watched the film, the, the film as an interpretation of that story is goes well beyond that. Okay, but that might be again. The but exception. that's a different argument. Okay, so Explain. now you're comparing a really great movie, yes, to a mediocre to poor novel. <laughs> You'd have to compare a really great movie, yes, to um, a really great piece of literature, 
or perhaps not compare them because they're apples and oranges mm. belonging to different genres? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one. I think that. Well, let me kind of give another example. If we if we can if we were if we were dwelling in the realm of genre, mm-hmm. for example, one of the things I love horror films, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's and I really like um, horror stories, written horror stories, which mm. I think is an incredibly difficult genre to master and to be effective at. And so um, I'm I'm currently reading a novel which falls under the the category of, of horror, okay. and it's very very good. But my experience is it's very very rare because I think horror. Um, is at its best. It's kind of designed as a visual medium. Oh, um, and it's as uh, written horror is almost impossible to pull off in an effective way. You've read Sophocles, right? He's a master of the macabre. Macabre and horror are—they're different. What? They're, yes, right. Okay. So I wouldn't call Oedipus Rex a horror story. No. There's, I, when I but say, there's when, deeply disturbing elements sure. of graphic description that are both morally and in terms of the imaginative effect, deeply disturbing. Deeply disturbing, but I think being disturbing doesn't make it horror. I mean, okay. when, I, when I say horror, I mean something that kind of dwells in the uncanny, that dwells in kind of the, un, the in an unsettlingness that you can't quite put your finger on, mm. and I'm forced to say it, the liminal, and that... <laughs> Nobody forced you to say that. Uh, but I feel, like it's, <laughs> I feel like I'm kind of expected to say it every episode now. Uh-huh. And so I think like, so in terms of like genre, I would say that it, film overwritten horror as a general rule just okay. because of of the the demands of the genre all right all right so why then maybe we got an answer to this question <laughs> why are good filmmakers described as not described as poetic we wouldn't say that was a poetic scene but the best poets are described as cinematic hmm. again i'm just i'm not sure that's true all right that's true. i mean i've heard I've heard. I had. I, do you, do I couldn't a, give an example, but I, I know that that filmmakers have been, have been designed hmm. like, the framing, organizing a scene as poetic. Do you have a preference for your own imagination to that of others? Um, generally speaking, yes. Yeah. So why would you want to see what you read in a book portrayed on a screen? Well, if it's if it's done by somebody that I respect, like if whose imaginative qualities you respect, exactly. In, in particular, right? I and and I, I would have to say that the the films that I like the best aren't the ones that are based on, on existing literature. So you do recognize the distinction in genres there? I do. So, I, mean, I think if my, my favorite film of all time is, is Coppola's Apocalypse Now, mm. right? which was not a book, mm-hmm. right? And it was, comes from kind of the fevered imagination of Coppola and a couple of, of other guys. And I find the way, um, I, when I watch that film, and I've watched it 50 times, um, that, that story as a book... Uh, I mean, it's loosely based on Heart of, Heart of Darkness, okay. which, which is a door, Joseph Conrad, it's a doorstopper of a, a novella. It's it, uh, it's very difficult to read, um, but if that were that story were told and written, you know, kind of as it as mm. it is with the dialogue and such, and, and the and um, the organization of those scenes, it, it would not work. Mm. It is has to be told visually. Yeah. So well, my right. my final comment doesn't have to be the final comment to this, but just my final comment <laughs> yeah. is my chief complaint against the aesthetics of modernity is the. Uh, ignoring of genres. Ignoring of genres. Mm-hmm. Okay, now you can't. We can't just leave that there. Poetry is poetry. Film yeah. is film. Uh, philosophy is philosophy. I like these distinct categories. Mm-hmm. And never the twain shall meet. Never the twain shall meet. Never the no? twain shall meet. All right. So you don't find any. You haven't seen anything kind of philosophical in this poem that we're reading so so far. Okay, you got me. <laughs> and there, are, there are philosophical discussions, but predominantly it's a work of imagination. Yes. And it's meant to evoke a certain kind of feeling, moral and aesthetic within me, uh, whose goal is not to condition me uh, to better ethical behavior or knowledge of myself. Okay. Okay. It's, it's to give me delight in a certain way. Yes. Right. Whereas I think the genre of film, as much as I enjoy it, is largely a substitute for imagination. Hmm. Which is why I find it a lazy pleasure. I gotcha. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I would say that, the, like... Um you know, it reminds me of, you know, when I listen to a radio station, you know, uh, 97.4, we play it all. Right. I hear that as a threat because like 95% <laughs> of all is horrible. Yeah. Right. And I think with film too, it's, it, it, like horror, it's very, very difficult to do it very well, very well. And so I think there are very, on the grand scheme, there are very few films worth seeing. So I think we're actually in agreement there. Yeah, you're always going for agreement. You're probably right. We may be talking past each other yeah. a little bit. All right. Um, let me translate those Can lines. you? Yes. Let's hear what Stan has to this say is there. What Mr. Lombardo translates um, 
There were altars around the courtyard, and the priestess shook her hair out free and chanted thunderous prayers to three hundred gods, to Erebus and Chaos, to three-bodied Hecate and Diana's three faces, virgin huntress, moon, and pale Proserpina. She sprinkled water as, as being from Avernus, and with a bronze knife harvested by moonlight, herbs selected for their milky black poison. She calls for the love charm of a newborn foal, torn from his forehead before his mother can eat it. Died to herself, sacred cakes of barley in her pious hand, stands close to the altars, one foot unsandaled, her dress unbound. Mm. That's frightening, isn't it? It is frightening. And it strikes me as that, you know, in some ways, you know, her deceit to Anna about the sorceress is really only kind of a half lie. Because mm-hmm. it's basically kind of the priestess is doing kind of the black magic That's right here. Correct. Right, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it also struck me, too, as we've talked in a numerous of these Aeneid episodes, how about the central characters are very concerned with doing things that are ritually and religiously correct. Correct. So if she's going to go out by suicide, she's going to do it the right way. Yeah, by the numbers. Mm-hmm. And then I thought uh, Virgil follows this up with, um, and here's where, I think that's where the whole kind of cinematic thing came from. Okay. In my, from my mind. He, com- he immediately contrasts these lines with this kind of, he kind of... Uh, Telescopes out, camera moves out. He gives a kind of a, he gives a he kind of gives a, a view of kind of all nature. What's happening at the same time that that you know Dido is wrapped in this passion, and this is and again Lombardo. Right, but if I may, yeah, okay, this is where Virgil's superior, because he did all of this without thinking about cameras, and there was no language or terminology for um, h- how would I portray this in a visual way. This is all his imagination suggesting to you how you ought to imagine it. That's the really interesting hookup. I agree, but also remember back where when Virg- when Aeneas first arrives at Carthage, one of the first things he encounters is kind of a film strip of everything that happened at Troy. Mm-hmm. He, I think Virgil is very interested in visual depictions of narrative. Now, of course, he doesn't, he doesn't think of them in terms of film and camera, right? Right. But he's very interested in the power of visual images to tell a story. We'll see that when Dido... Climbs into her funeral pyre. She takes with her. I don't. I, I, I'd be interested to see what the Latin is here. But one of the things she carries with her is a picture of Aeneas. Right. So she look. Well, she have like the you know the little wallet size, mm-hmm. right? And so um, Aeneas's high school photo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's probably wearing a varsity right. jacket. He's probably like a four sport yeah. letter athlete, right? Yeah, most likely to. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Completely mess things up. No, right? Most likely to found a civilization. <laughs> right, right, right. right. Um, so I think that. I mean, you're, you're obviously right that he's not thinking in terms of what we would think of film today, but I think he's very interested in the power of visuals to tell a story. Okay. All right. Um, I, I interrupted you. Sure. And, and, so, I'll, and I'll do so again. Okay. <laughs> so when Virgil's just, no, I mean, right now. Oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah, please. When Virgil's describing like, uh, you know, the seashore, right? The sand on the seashore, uh, you know, it, it lay there as the waves lapped against it. Mm-hmm. That conjures in your mind a, a different, though similar image than it conjures in my mind. Explain. Well, we have come from quite different backgrounds, mm-hmm. right? You've seen beaches and shores and, and the content of your imagination, although similar enough to mine that when Virgil says seashore, we get a similar idea, mm-hmm. divergent in every other way, right? So that's the power of the written word to evoke imagination. Whereas if this is put on screen, now we are seeing exactly the same thing. Ah, okay. We're seeing exactly the same thing. And my argument is that mm. that's limiting in some way. Yeah, I will completely buy that. Right. Uh, the power that literature has is that it becomes something new in the mind of every person that hears or reads it. Exactly. Right. Well said. Right. Now, I think that, you know, um, film too can have wildly different interpretations. But in terms of kind of what you're experiencing, it's, it's leveling. You're right. Yes. Okay. Yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. So we do agree. We do agree. All right. <laughs> but Virgil, uh, so right after that very kind of hot and kind of disturbing description he writes it was night and all over earth weary bodies lay peacefully asleep woods and wild seas had fallen still and the stars were midway in their gliding orbits ox and meadow were quiet and all the brilliant birds who haunt the lapping lakes and tangled hedgerows were nestled in sleep under the dark silent sky that is so beautiful. So it, it, that, you know, there's that, there's also, you know, you often will see that notion in literature of kind of the, um, I forget what the term is, when nature kind of imitates what's happening on earth. Like if, if somebody's raging down, you know, on, on earth or going through pain, it's stormy, right? I see. Uh, uh, I, I can forget the term here. I don't know the exact term. And, and, but Virgil here does the exact opposite. Mm-hmm. So it's like nature doesn't care. 
It's also intended to have an effect on us. It's a lull. Yeah. You can't maintain, I don't think, uh, you can't maintain this kind of excited frenzy, fear, and anxiety about Dido's fate right. for hundreds of lines. Yes. You have to have a lull in the action. Exactly. It, it, it's like you can't have the chorus all the time. Right. right? You, you know what else it's like? It's a bridge. Yeah. It, it, it's also like the baptism scene in The Godfather. Do you know what I'm mm. talking about? Yes, I do. So the the juxtaposition of the killing and the yes, the that's baptism. exactly what this is. Yeah, except they're not happening at the same time, are they? It's yeah. alternation. Well, no, I think they are. We're meant to see kind of in the, the movie, but you're saying here in the here, yeah, we're saying because nature is placid, while Dido is is in hysteria. Do you take that? You take from that the idea that Virgil is telling us nature is indifferent, or the world moves on while individuals have their crises moments of terrible suffering i mean i think that's one way you could interpret this is that virgil is it could be saying that you know the um you know the business of human beings is is very very small in the grand scheme of things but i don't think that's what he's doing i think he's doing exactly what we were saying in terms you were saying in terms of the lull Hmm. it's the it's the kind of the jerking us to something completely different that is, he's he's you know he's tangling with our emotions, mm. and he does it for the, that very kind of personal effect. Right. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, lulls, yeah, uh, jerking people's emotions and tangling. Yeah. What are you talking about? It's time for the ads. All right. This episode of Ad Nauseum is brought to you by Ratio Coffee. Dave, this morning, I had my Ratio Eight queued up from the night before. I just hit the button. And within probably about 12, 13 minutes, I had the perfect cup of coffee. And um, I've had several coffee machines that I've owned before. I've had, right. you know, Senior Cafe. and Dak and Blecker. Uh, the ones with, the, you know, the, the scorch pad that we talked about. Mm-hmm. And never in my life have I had a cup of, cup of coffee brewed at home that good. No. It was fantastic. Yeah. So Racial Coffee is this company that's been with us for a very long time. That's right. Um, we've got, it's a it's Mr. Mark Helwig. Is, that's correct. He's the mastermind out there in Portland, Oregon. That's right. I was on the phone with him a couple of weeks ago. How's he doing? He's doing great. Yes. He's doing great. We were talking about coffee and uh, talking a little bit about his... Um, Trajectory as an entrepreneur and entrepreneur. <laughs> nah, there's nothing there. No, brunur. I like it. Brunur. Go, go with it, yes. It's got the brew and <laughs> it's, it's newer. Right. <laughs> Both good things. Yes. How much he loves, uh, how much he loves making coffee and everything coffee related, how much he has learned in the process. Uh, the listener probably doesn't know, but Mark spent quite a while researching um, high level Italian espresso machines and other kinds of coffee makers before he designed the ratio eight man and uh so you know he is a purveyor of of brilliant espresso machines but he thought how come the home brew coffee maker hasn't really evolved uh in our lifetimes well now it has he has invented this automatic pour over machine delivers a very consistent delicious cup of coffee it does right i wish i thought like that like you know to see you know, kind of a need. You did. A gap in the in the. Oh, in you the culture. did. Where, where did I see that? You said that there are lots of podcasts, but there currently is no podcast oh, wait. with two chuckleheads yes. who have some tenuous friendship discussing classics in a haphazard way. That's right. And we filled that niche. We filled that niche. So I am, I am kind of like, we're kind of like are. Mark, Mike, right. Mark Helwig. We yeah. filled that niche like delicious coffee filling the borosilicate hand-blown glass carafe. There we go. Way to tie that together. Thank I you. like that. So listeners, if you want to, to own one of these beautiful machines, the Ratio 6 or its older, slightly fancier brother, the uh, the Ratio 8, uh-huh. uh, you can go to ratiocoffee.com and you can click on one or if you're so inclined, both of those machines. And for the remainder of August, if you type in ANCO7C, 7C, 7C, um, or if you're listening to this in September, uh, ANCOV4, mm-hmm. that coupon code will get you, I believe, 15%, 15% off either machine. Right. Yeah, I had a great cup of uh, coffee, several cups of coffee from my Ratio 8 this morning. And uh, so simple, so simple. I usually queue everything up, press that one button to get it started. Yep. I go, you know, to take care of other tasks. I come back, piping hot, delicious, sweet coffee. No... Um, no harsh CO2, it's all been off-gassed. That's right. Is waiting right there for me in the hulking flagon. Yeah, so check it out, listeners. You will not regret it. That's correct. 
This episode of Ad Nauseum is also brought to you by Hackett Publishing, H-A-C-K-E-T-T publishing.com with offices in, uh, is it Vermont and Ohio? No, 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 no. It's, we're, it, we're talking Indianapolis, Indiana and okay. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Ah, Cambridge, Ma and Indianapolis in. Yes. And what uh, have those these folks been doing for now 50 years? Well, they have been uh, publishing accessible erudite, affordable translations of not just the classics, but from every corner of academia that you could think of, um, history, culture, religion, mythology, folklore, uh, they do it all. And um, I can't recommend them highly enough. The translation of uh, Stanley Lombardo's Aeneid, which we've been using throughout the um, these uh, episodes, uh, is it the Cresac? Yes, Len Cresac. Also comes from, from Hackett Publishing. That's right. Um, whatever you want uh, in the under the realm of... of um, of academia, or if you're just looking for a great, affordable translation of something from the classical realm, um, you're going to find it at HackettPublishing.com. That's right. I'm at the website right now, and I'm looking at a handsome volume, uh, Classics in Western Philosophy of Art. Ah, uh, yes. By Noel Carroll, Major Themes and Arguments. So we've been discussing quite a bit of aesthetics here in our amateur way, mm -hmm. but if you want to know something about the philosophy of art, you might want to pick up this volume by Noel Carroll, Major Themes and Arguments. Uh, right next to it is The Essential Greek Historians. So you have a comparison of individuals like Herodotus and Thucydides, Plutarch and Polybius. This is by Stanley Burstein. Uh, I think this is going to be a big seller for them because this really scratches an itch people have for Greek history and then some understanding of the development of the genre. Yeah, and it's in, in the books they have are going to find... Um, you'll find that their um, most budgets are going to be able to accommodate them. So one That's of the, right. One of the big problems, of, uh, as you and I both uh, well know, with academic publishing oh. is that these volumes will often only come out in hardback. Oh, and you'll, they're hugely they're, expensive. You'll find them only in libraries. And if you want to buy them for your own personal library, you're talking $200, $300 for oh, a yeah. these. There's it's a good. Dutch publisher I won't mention, but everybody knows whom I'm speaking of. I know of. Who you're talking about. <laughs> yes. $300 minimum. Now, they put out good stuff, but who can afford that? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. But Hackett is, um, they're a publisher for the people. That's right. So the Essential Greek Historians, I'm looking at the page here. Mm -hmm. You can get a cloth version, uh, $62, a paper version for $20. See, that's a great deal. And we have a coupon code, don't we, Jeff? We do. So if you go to hackettpublishing.com, find what you want, you type in the code AN2022, um, their 50th year anniversary year. Um, you're going to get uh, a couple of great things: twenty percent off your entire order and free shipping. You're not gonna, you're not going to find that on that other website no, no. Uh, named after a giant river. That's right. Check it out. And finally, this episode is brought to you by what? What are we talking about here? Come on, Jeff. The Moss Method. Moss Method. Yeah, right. tell us about the Moss Method. Well, Dave. we're running a special sale: ten percent off right now. It began this Monday, August fifteen. You want to go to mossmethod.com? Check out a lot of my free instruction where I talk about. The New Testament, I talk about Plato, I talk about Xenophon, a whole range of authors. And if you like the free instruction and you want to go from not too good to pretty good. No, but it's better phrase is neophyte to erudite. Uh, yes. Neophyte to erudite. Mm -hmm. Then you can sign up for the course. Yes. Uh, it's divided into four modules. Module one, regular $325, $325, 10 off sale running now. It includes 40 instructional videos. It includes 40 lessons, six quizzes, two exams, lots of additional material. There really is no reason not to learn Greek uh, through this course. Now, tell them about the Moffis Hours, though. Well, the Moffis Hours, I know this is your favorite, is yes. on Friday. And uh, I convene these Moffis Hours and students from all over the world, all over the United States and, and other places in this, in this world. We gather together for an hour. I answer any questions they have about Greek. We read and translate together. We talk about literature. It's a really good time. Fantastic. So mossmethod.com. That's correct. All right, Jeff, so as we get right back into it, where is Dido psychologically now in the story? She's all over the place, right? I find this one of the things that's very, I think in, in many ways, very realistic. Um, she does not come off as you know, cartoonish or cliched here. Um, this is, uh, Virgil again taps into um, a woman in extreme distress, and it's very believable. And so she has kind of this one last moment of um, what I like to describe as kind of Hamlet-like wavering. You know, Hamlet. To, to be or not to be, right? Is this the Kenneth Branagh edition? Um, it could be. Do you like that one? I like that one. Okay. I mean, there's also the Mel Gibson one, right? Mel Gibson played Hamlet? He did, yes, yeah. Um, it wasn't bad. I don't remember. Right. Um, and so she's, she's, you know, she's contemplating, of course, suicide, but she's saying, should I... 
should I do this? Should I not do this? Um, maybe I should, you know, go into the, go to one of those former suitors that, you know, made a decent offer to me. Um, maybe I should, uh, you load up the ships and chase after the Trojans. Mm. Um, and should in, in, uh, thoughts of either attacking them or saying, Hey, can we come along too? Right. And so she said, but you know, could I ever, you know, convince my people kind of to pack up and, and, and move again? Uh, and one of the things in, in this, uh, this time reading through, um, the Aeneid, one of the things I really took away from it is, um, I always had kind of this assumption that you know Dido was kind of this commanding queen, mm. and everybody kind of just kind of followed followed her, and were kind of all on, on board. But this 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 most recent reading shows me is that kind of her hold on things is is fairly shaky, mm. right? It, it seems I think Virgil seems to suggest that a lot of the Tyrians aren't exactly on board with the whole project, right? Or maybe since you know, she met Aeneas, the whole thing kind of ground to a halt. But when she talks about you know. Um, I mean, convincing them to come in the first place was right. was almost impossible. Could I ever do it again? Um, but of course, ultimately, she fall she falls on the choice. No, I've chosen death, and this is what I have to do to end it all. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then Mercury appears right to Aeneas and I, again. Yes, yeah. yeah I, I referenced this. <laughs> yeah. And what is Aeneas doing? While Dido is having this turmoil, he's up in the stern catching a nap. You're kidding yeah, me. Yeah, good time to kind of doze off and huh. take a break. You know? <laughs> completely detached from the anguish of the woman he once loved. Yes. Yeah. And completely detached from what his what his men are doing, what he told them to do. Uh, what, what do you make of this? What are we supposed to think about Aeneas doing this in uh, this moment? I like the interpretation we referenced in previous episodes that for the sake of the storyline, Aeneas has to recede into the background. Mm. Virgil writes him out of the story temporarily. He has no agency no drive. He's not moving along the action, not because the way he has been portrayed previously makes that impossible, right. but because Dido has to be at the front of the stage. Yeah. So Aeneas recedes. Yeah, I, I like that too. I mean, this this episode reminded me of two episodes from Antiquity, and um, I, I'm I'm not arguing that that uh, Virgil had either of them in mind. One he couldn't have had in mind because it it, it happened after him. Um, but it, it reminded me of uh, Odysseus sleeping with the bag of winds. Okay. Right. And he doesn't tell his men about it. And his men say, oh, you know, what's he got in there? Right. He's trying to pull one over us and they open the bag. And um, that doesn't work as as kind of a, a comparandum. Now, the other scene that it reminded me is of um, um, Jesus with his disciples in the Sea of Galilee. Mm. When the storm's brewing and, and they're freaking asleep. out and he's having a nap, right? Right. That also doesn't work as a comparandum. So I, I because I think the... the the moral behind either of those stories, what it says about the character behind the the, the, the sleeping figures in those stories, is so different than what's happening with Aeneas here. He, it's it's detachment. It's fading into the wallpaper. That's what's going on here. For Aeneas, you're for saying. For Aeneas, yes, exactly. Right. So you know, for 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 Christ, it kind of shows kind of his command of the, of the situation. Right. He's not troubled by the storms because he commands the storms. Mm-hmm. Um, with Odysseus, maybe you could make argue that it's a detachment from his men. The, he right. doesn't care for he, them. He doesn't care about them. Correct. Right. But um, Aeneas seems he's, to have a... a he's more, got no excuse. He's got no excuse. Right. It's, 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 it makes it so odd. So I, I, the argument about that um, he must fade, Right. Um, I think that's the most persuasive mm. here. Yeah. So what does Mercury say when he appears to Aeneas here in the dream? So again, he tells him, you know, get off your duff. You've got to get out of here. Dido is, is, is going crazy. And it's striking that Mercury says, you know, go deal with that. He says, no. Dido's done, um, but if this you know if this gets out of hand, that fire is going to find the ships. So you better get up and and, uh, and get out of there. And, and um, he describes Dido famously as, and again this is Lombardo as a as a a woman uh, as a fickle and worrisome thing. Yes, you want to distance yourself from. That's that, right. Right. So warium et mutabile, something like that. Yeah. I think is the Latin. Right. Hmm. And it, we talked about this. Again, this is um, this is getting ahead of things, but you know the woman that he ultimately winds up with, Lavinia. Hmm. Um, she's not a fickle and worrisome thing. She's kind of a nothing. That's right. She's kind of a cipher. Exactly. Right. She's yeah. a blank page. Yep. So finally Aeneas uh, takes the hint mm-hmm. and he leaps out of bed, cuts the cable, and they they start to push their ships out of the out of the harbor. Mm-hmm. Right? They got a, a paddle boat with like a swan on the prow. <laughs> I like picturing that. Just, yeah. You ever been in a paddle boat? Yes. And, you know, you, the more the harder you paddle, the slower you the go. The slower you go. <laughs> exactly. So right. Any panicked pedaling won't get you anywhere. It's a lot of fun. Right. You see the evocative nature of the written, the spoken word. Huh? <laughs> yeah. huh? very, very nice. Okay. Right. Now, um, about 20 years ago, I had the privilege of going to Carthage 
Um, you, you've not been there, have you? To, no. To ancient Carthage? No, I haven't I, been to Tunisia. I haven't been to Tatooine. Listen, listen. I haven't been to, you know, all of the uh, places where Augustine of Hippo, you know, hippoed. Right. Exactly right. You will get there one day. Okay. Um, but um, the ancient site of Carthage, uh, it's Acropolis, mm-hmm. so, so to speak. The, you know, the arcs in some ways that That's we're right. talking the about citadel. here. If you, if you look down just the slope... Uh, the ancient harbor of Carthage is still, you can still mm. see the outline of it. And so mm-hmm. when Virgil talks about Dido up on the citadel watching the, the fleet going out, yep. it's picturesque. It's picturesque. And um, I don't know if Virgil ever went to Carthage. I, I, There's no reason to think he didn't. It, I, I, it was a common trip. I suppose. I suppose. So, I mean, this, it was all, you know, pacified Roman territory by his lifetime. The way he describes this, when I think of, of myself standing on the citadel and looking down, I said, like, oh, yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. But there were maps. There were plenty, True. Of, plenty of persons he could have asked. Yes. Right, um, but I wouldn't. Point. I wouldn't doubt he visited. Right. Did you see Aeneas's Crocs along the shore somewhere? His Crocs that he, yeah. left, that he left behind. He was in a big hurry, you know. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. There's a. There's a. Um, there's a set of Crocs down there that that people claim were Aeneas's. Aeneas's right. <laughs> Is he go with the camouflage Crocs or what's the the choice for Aeneas? Um, they were they were kind of they were glittery. Yeah. as I remember exactly. Uh, Tyrian purple, probably. <laughs> right. Right, right, right. With the sparkles. But right. Dido sees the fleet. Yep. And then she has another Voltfoss. She does. To use the German. And her thoughts turn to revenge. Right. And so, again, emotionally, she's all over the map. Um, Can I read some of this, Lombardo? Yeah, please do. Or did you want No, to? go ahead. I, I've, I've dominated that part. Okay. So yeah. then so then Dido says, oh, God, she said, will he get away? Will this interloper make a mockery of us? To arms, the whole city after him, launch the fleet, bring fire, man the oars. What am I saying? Where am I? What has come over me? Oh, Dido, only now. Do you feel your guilt? Better to have felt it when you gave away your crown. Behold the pledge. The loyalty of the man, they say, bears his ancestral gods. Bore on his shoulders his age-worn father. Could I have not torn him limb from limb and fed him to the fishes? Wow. Murdered his friends. See, now she goes again crazy. Yes. Minced Ascanius himself and served him up as a meal to his father. So there we have the banquet of Atreus. Exactly. Uh, the sons of is Atreus and Thyestes, yes. right? Uh, Atreus, the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus, and uh, caught his brother Thyestes in adultery and so killed the children of Thyestes. But not only that, um, served them. them up as, as, as right. main course, right? The battle could have gone either way, Dido says. What of it? Doomed to die, whom did I have to fear? I should have torched his camp with my own hands, annihilated father and son in the whole race, and thrown myself on top of the conflagration. Now, what, what do you make of this? Is, is are these? Is this just kind of um, tragic hyperbole? Yes. Okay. This is not something that um, she, we're, we're supposed to imagine. Well, if Dido had wanted to do that, she could have gotten away with that. Well, maybe she could have. She could have gotten away with it because I do think that. Aeneas and his men are very vulnerable in that position. True. But the reason that I think it's just tragic hyperbole is that Dido has thus far shown no instincts like this. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Medea, compared to Medea, by the time she gets to killing her children in Corinth... She's already she dismembered so many people. She committed <laughs> multiple crimes. Very good point. All along the way. She killed her own brother, uh, Absurtus, I think his name is. Yeah. Scattered him on the waves. She uh, killed Peleus... Jason's wicked Peleus, Jason's wicked uncle, by throwing him into the boiling cauldron, chopping him up. She also killed uh, the bronze guy, Talos, Talos, on on the uh, island of Crete. So Medea has a track record of brutality, which makes Jason's uh, confidence in her ridiculous. Right, right. Of course she's going to respond that way. Dido has no prior violence on her record, right? She fled Pygmalion and the troubles of Tyre. Uh, so I think this is ranting and raving. That's why I find her character more sympathetic. Yeah, she's not. She's not ultimately a villain. Yeah, yeah, a villainess. Yeah, and, and if we were talking in our previous episode about, um, I think one of the theories I offered of of explaining kind of Aeneas's problem is that um, Virgil keeps putting him into the shoes of other kind of recognizable heroes, mm. and he's got to find his own story. He's right. got, and so he's got. To, and so here, Dido, I think, has the same kind of problem. You know, in this composite of tragic heroines that she appears to be, she too can't find a center. She -hmm. can't find her own persona. Um, And so for her, the only way out is is death. And Aeneas escapes that because fate is pushing him towards his own story. That's right. Yeah. So um, this this scene really struck me as very reminiscent of um, Polyphemus. 
watching Odysseus sail away. Really? Um, and say, say more about that. In if that, you would. that um, in the lines that come uh, come next, where um, when Dido curses, right? And and so remember, Polyphemus curses Odysseus. He says, uh, he says you know, um, you know, hear me, Poseidon, hear me, Father. Right. And he says, what I really want is Odysseus to to, to drown, to be destroyed, his, his ships to die. He says, but um, if that's not possible, then may he arrive home um, alone. And having lost everything. Yeah. And that's the part of the curse that works. Mm. And so here too, Dido says, has a similar kind of thing. She has these, you know, this is what I really want. But if that can't happen, then at least this. And it's a curse that I think that indeed um, follows Aeneas. Part of her curse. Well, I'll just read it here. Um, do we want to get some Latin in there yeah, first? Yeah, let's is get some okay? Latin here. Let, let's, let's, let's do that. Okay, this is from line 659. Dixit et os impressatoro moriemur in ultai, sed moriamura et sic sic iuat irdra sabumbras, haudriat hunc oculis ignem crudelis abalto, dardanas et nostrice cum ferret omnia mortis. Very nicely done. Thank you. So we have here, um, so um, Dido climbs atop the, she climbs atop the pyre and she says, Dido spoke and pressing her face into the couch, we will die unavenged, but we will die. This is how I want to pass into the dark below. The cruel Trojan will watch the fire from the sea and carry with him the omens of my death. And with these words on her lips, her companions saw her collapse onto the sword, saw the blade foaming with blood and her hands spattered. A cry rises to the roof and rumor dances wildly through the, sh the shaken town. The houses ring with lamentation and the wails of women. Great dirges hang in the air. It was as if Carthage itself or ancient Tyre had fallen to the enemy and flames rolled through the houses of men and over the temples of the gods. Hmm. So I, I think that that's, I th that's imagery is striking, is that what people are hearing, what they're doing, what they're seeing, it looks like uh, not that the uh, Trojans have fled, but that they've taken it by violence. Right. But it's in some ways, it's the same kind of thing. Right? Like Troy. Like Troy. Yeah, all, all over again. Yes. Yep. Isn't this a fairly typical female suicide? I mean, a fairly atypical female suicide? Are you going to bring Edgeworth back in here? Yeah. So if you remember, if uh, listeners will remember the opening quote, Edgeworth was saying the, the pirate thing is is odd because most female suicides they, they, they hang themselves or they're you know, they're poisoned. Right. But climbing on a pyre and certainly stabbing oneself is um is atypical. So Edgeworth's answer to this. It's a soldier's death? Uh, well, I, I guess so. I mean, it, it reminded me when I read this before I even looked up Edgeworth, is, it kind of sounded like um, you know, Lucretia. Right. You know, so it's a... Just to fill in the audience on Lucretia, this yeah. is the wife of Collatinus mm -hmm. at the founding of the Republic. So we're talking 510, 509 BC. And uh, she's outraged by Tarquinius uh, Superbus, mm -hmm. right? The son of the tyrant. And then she takes her own life. Right. Uh, by uh, stabbing herself. Stabbing herself, right. So that struck me as, okay, um, Virgil wants us to connect Dido's death with a um, uh, someone like Lucretia. You know, so you know, Roman women, uh, in, in many, if you compare them to like Greek women, in some ways the way that they act, not, uh, not always, I think it's by far the exception, but they act in a much more kind of masculine fashion mm -hmm. when it comes down to this kind of stuff. Right. So maybe what Virgil wants to, to see Dido as a kind of Lucretia or, or a kind of, it's a, it's a Roman death. She's more stoic. She's, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. a female version of Caesar yes. or a female version of Cato the Younger, something yes. like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly right, right. Um, um, which I, that strikes me as very persuasive. Edgeworth's answer is uh, he went to um, Polybius, the Roman historian, hmm. and looked at uh, you know, episodes in the, uh, the Punic Wars. Okay. And um, he zeroed in on the death of Hasdrubal. His wife, Hasbro's wife, Hasbro, you know, a, a general and, and king of the of brother Carthage. of Hannibal. Yes, exactly, and the way that she dies in kind of this raving, passionate fashion, and also builds her own funeral pyre and dies by really by, by stabbing, which I had never known. How come I didn't know this either? No, I I, I never read that passage in Polybius. <laughs> or a couple or, of ignorami, apparently. Or if, or if I did, I'd never made that kind of connection. Huh. Um, I, the article also says that that passage is um, there's lots of gaps. Mm. So he's kind of filling in the blanks as well. Maybe one of the reasons that with his imagination, well, I mean, speculation. He, What's he filling it in he's with? He's reconstructing the text in a little putty, a little, little spackle okay. here and there. Um, but he's uh, he's taking kind of key pieces and kind of reconstructing the scene. And it's it's, it's persuasive. Mm. Um, but he says that's what Virgil would have expected his audience to think of. Mm. 
And I think that's very interesting. You know, it Car- is. Dido almost, you know, um, you know, foreshadowing the death of a of a Carthaginian queen hundreds of years later. Yes, a well known Carthaginian queen. Yes, who died as part of the conflict in some way between Rome and Carthage. Right, adds another layer of um, interest. Yeah, so I found that aspect of it very, very, very persuasive. Mm. Um, um, and I think, that, and very much more specific than just saying, "Oh, you know, Dido is expressing kind of a Roman way of killing oneself." Right. Um, uh, I thought Edward's as his argument was more persuasive and, and more interesting along those lines. Right. Yeah. And we as we come to the very end of the book. Yes. Juno plays a role here. Yeah. If you're if you remember that Juno has pity on poor Dido as she's dying uh, there on the funeral pyre and dispatches Iris. Yes. The all, right. all-purpose goddess of the rainbow and messenger. Mm-hmm. Um, to do what exactly? Well, she comes down to kind of complete the final rite to cut. That's correct. To cut the hair. Yes, right? to cut a lock of hair. So if I could just read the last. What, the last four lines of the book? Mm-hmm. We're finally going to finish it this episode, Jeff. Yes, my goodness. Line 701 through 705, and then maybe you can give us Lombardo. Yeah. De valadet supra caput astit et hunc ego diti, sacrum iusaferote quisto corpora salvo, sic aedet dextra crinem secat omnis et una, dilapsus color at quin ventos vita requesit. And thus ends book four. That's right. And Lombardo says? Lombardo says, um, um, with a quote here, this offering I consecrate to Dis, Underworld, and release you from your body. As soon as she had cut the lock, all the body's warmth ebbed away, and Dido's life withdrew into the winds. Mm. Yeah. Which is strikingly, again, getting way ahead of things. Similar? Strikingly similar to the very last line. The end of the whole epic and the death of Turnus. Yes, right, which I think is not accidental, and is an argument that this is a finished work. That's a great point. Yep. And we'll have to spend quite a bit of time on um, both Virgil's Nachleben, mm-hmm. and uh, to use the French, and also um, the puzzling final scene of the death of Turnus at the end of Book Twelve. Yes, one of my one of my favorites because it's so maddening, right? right. And it leads you in so many different directions. Dare we'll get, I say it's liminal? It is. It is liminal. We should probably get to that maybe somewhere in two thousand twenty-four. Yeah, I would say this is becoming the odd. A, a neodym uh, podcast. What? what? Oh, oh uh, not the ad nauseum, but the I got it. That's right. Very nice. It's, it's totally, it's totally worth it. Yep. But, but we're up against today. We are. Yeah. We got to get out of here. Let's do that. Right. So before we leave, uh, we got some people to thank. Who would you like to thank? Uh, I would like to thank myself really? for developing this Latin program called. Um, oh yeah. The, yeah. The LLPSI. <laughs> the LLPSI. Tell us a little bit about that. Right. Would you? So if you go to latinperdm.com slash LLPSI, you can sign up for my Latin course, which takes you ab initio, mm-hmm. right from the very beginning. You can study Latin with me. We have uh, 25 uh, video lessons available where I'm interacting with charming live students, as well as many, many office hours recorded. So you can start out with the Lingua Latina Per Se Illustrata, Hans Orberg's famous book, and um, start learning Latin today. It's it's uh, inductive. It's careful. Take lots of notes. It's also inexpensive. Fantastic. One hundred ninety nine dollars. Does that get you a cup of coffee? You know, at your local bar stucks. Right. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So where do they go to, to find that again? Latinperdm.com slash llpsi. All right. We do need to thank some people. We do, uh, as always, uh, Mishka. Dear, dear Mishka. For putting this all together. Yes. Um, Sometimes works on a compressed schedule. Man, it's amazing how she can turn that thing but around. But does it with brilliance. She makes does. us sound good. Yep. Um, the great music you hear throughout. Right. Scott Vinzen, just that screaming, shredding guitar. Yeah, I like uh, that. I like it. It also makes me very envious yeah, at the same time. Melodic and bluesy. Well, he's got a, you know, he's got a course. Does he? The Scott Vinzen Guitar School. You right, can check that learn out. to play like that. Right, exactly. Yeah. It's never too late to start shredding. No, right? it isn't. Right. And uh, Ken Tamplin. <laughs> yes. Uh, him of the great voice and the vocal academy. Yeah, and the fancy shirts. Oh, man, that guy had the fashion. Sartorial. Uh, that guy has some sartorial acumen. He was. He was born. I think that guy was born to be on stage. I think so. Yep. You betcha. And um, hey, if you want a, if you want a shout out, if you want to try to rival the great shout out that uh, Father Pelican got at the top of this episode, you should write to us. We yeah. want to hear from you. Yeah, like Father Pelican swoop down <laughs> over the... You know, I can't resist. <laughs> swoop down like Father Pelican over the placid seas of the podcast yes. and scoop up in your bill your own... 
shout out. I was wondering when you were going to get around to the Pelican thing. I did it. I knew it was going to happen, right? I did it. So you should write. If you want to write to Dave, you can write to Dave at uh, Dave at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Or Jeff at adnauseum.com. Don't forget the V. Some shout outs are now rolling in for which we're very grateful. Fantastic. And next week, we're taking a little bit of a break. We are. From the Aeneid. What, we talk, what are we talking about? We're going to talk about a famous article by a famous Renaissance scholar named Charles Trinkhouse. Mm-hmm. It's from a, a collection called um, The Scope of Renaissance Humanism. Okay. And we're going to look particularly at the Renaissance view of the dignity of man. Sounds fantastic. You sounds, may be surprised. Sounds, it sounds a little bit heavy. No, I don't think it'll be heavy. Can we lighten it? We'll keep it light. All right. But there'll be some, some levity and some gravity. It may be surprising to our audiences, but human beings have dignity. And uh, we're going to talk about that next week. So tune in for episode 94. Excellent. And Dave, I believe you have our gustatory parting shot. I do. This is by the Chinese-American novelist, Amy Tan. Mm-hmm. Have you ever read any Amy Tan? I read kind of her big novel, her kind of her breakout one, which I can't remember what uh-oh, it is. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Like 30 years ago. Uh, I haven't read it, yeah. but I, I understand was, she's very successful. It was a very good book. Yes. Yeah. And uh, here is the, the funny quote with which we'll take this out. Uh, Ms. Tan says, I am a miserable cook but an extremely talented eater. Well done. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Thanks.